The Christian poet from Ireland, John O'Donohue, said this. We are all deeply connected with each other. In some strange way, we all belong with each other in the unfolding and articulation of the one human story. We are all connected in making this story. Each of us is secretly active in weaving the tapestry of the spirit. I love that. Each of us is secretly active in weaving the tapestry of the spirit. He then goes on to explain, perhaps you've seen this before, a Persian tapestry. Colorful, beautiful tapestries. But we do not get to see how all of those threads weave beautifully together to make this unified whole. Rather, our experience is looking from the backside of a Persian tapestry. Now, have you ever looked at the backside of a tapestry? It is not the same image that you get on the front. On the back, you see the rough and raw threads You see a mesh of something, all these different things, but they don't come together the same way they do on the front side. From the back, you're not sure what to make of it. It's just a mesh of various rough, raw, rugged threads. We are at that disadvantage in life, especially as the people of God. We talk about how Christ has come and brought unity between us and God and to unify the church together as his body. And yet our experience is often, I cannot believe that church said this about that church or that that church even exists or that that nobody nobody else else is like like us or that that this person actually sits in the same row I do. This is a very unjust world. world. Or how on earth are they Christians? I know what they do in their private life. And And this this is our experience, is we're somewhat loosely connected because we all use the Jesus word, but we really doubt that some of us know Jesus the way that I know Jesus. That's how we often think, if we're honest with ourselves. We look, we're living as if we're looking at the backside of the tapestry. We don't get the benefit of seeing the beautiful picture the way God sees it. Until books like Ephesians come into our lives, and they show us the beautiful landscape of the unity that Christ has brought. So, we must, we as humans are in this place where we must make sense of the mess. So we see mess in the world, we see contradictory ideas, we see problems and conflict, we must make sense of it. And so, Ephesians is going to be our guide tonight to help us make sense of the mess we find called life, called division, called we're all human and have our own personal agendas. How do we lay that aside? And how do we come together? These are things Paul was concerned about as he writes to the Ephesians. So let's open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Since um, we're going we're gonna to do the whole message of the books, so I'm going to take you to some of the highlights, the, the pinnacles of the, this book's message. If you've never read Ephesians, you got to start with chapter one when you go home, because it is the greatest sentence in the history of the world. I'm not biased, and I'm not kidding. It is a 202-word sentence in the Greek of magnificent depth. 
it mentions the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit's role. And all of them, by the way, this sort of sets the tone for the book, the three of them are working together as a unified God. Three in one. And we often say Father, Son, Holy Spirit and think that there's a pecking order. Father is over the Son and Son is over the Spirit. Spirit is kind of like the third tail of the Trinity. That's not how it goes. There's no pecking order. There's no hierarchy in God. The Trinity is actually best pictured as C.S. Lewis describes it and as many Christians before C.S. Lewis has described it as a circle as this interrelation, as they are feeding love, adoration, and glory to one another reciprocally. So it's going in all directions. They are equally one. The Father, Son, Spirit, this relationship is what God looks like. This equal, loving, sharing relationship where each is exalting the other and reflecting the beauty and magnificence of the other in the other and in themselves. This is what God looks like. Right off the bat, without even using the word unity, Paul is implying, getting this in our subconscious, that God is a unified being. Therefore, he must bring unity to the world. Then in chapter 2, he goes in and talks about how we were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked. So you guys were alienated. You guys, like us. Paul's saying you guys, but me too. We were following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were doomed. We weren't unified with our heavenly father. But God, in verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In other words, as Christ was raised from the dead, God has raised us from our separation, our spiritual death. That's separation. And he's brought us to life so that now we can be unified with him, not just unified with him, but put in the same stature and position as him. This it's for a whole nother night. One day we'll get in Ephesians. You'll know. But look at this. He raised us up together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him. So it's resurrection and seated us. That's ascension. Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As Christ raised from the dead and went up to sit on the throne. Paul is saying he raised you and he's now seating you there on that throne with Christ. That makes total sense now why Revelation chapter 5 says, By his blood he redeemed all people from every tribe, language, and nation, and we shall reign with him on the earth. Because we've been put in his position. We are, as Romans 8 says, co-heirs with Christ. He is the firstborn, metaphorically, meaning he's just, he's before us. And then we're tagged along as his adopted brothers and sisters, and the father will give the inheritance we will reign with him, as Revelation says. And Paul's showing us here, we are sons and daughters of the king. We're with Christ. Um, and he's done all this so that he may show off his glory through us. So chapter 2 shows us that, look, this gap was bridged in Christ. So God and humanity has been brought together in Christ. Now he says, okay, if that's the case, 
this should happen horizontally as well. If heaven and earth are coming together through God and humans, then what's happening to people on the left side, on the right side, people on this view of life and that view of life, people of this race and people of that race. What's happening to the cultural, social, human aspect of everything? Okay, so look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. Okay, what what does that mean? You Gentiles in the flesh. A Gentile was a non-Jew. So, me... If I'm living in the days of Jews, Gentiles, I'm definitely on the Jew- Gentile side. I don't think, I don't know of any Jewish blood in my family line. I'm, I'm a Gentile, okay? I think most of us here are Gentiles. Okay. At that time, you Gentiles in the flesh. Here, Paul wants to emphasize that your Gentileness is not a soul thing. It's not a spirit thing. It's a flesh thing. It's, it's an external thing that doesn't matter to God. Well, your body matters to God, but your ethnicity, God isn't going to say, oh, well, the gen- you're, you're second-rate human because you're not a Jew. Gentiles in the flesh called, now the ESV puts this in quotes, so you get that this is a name-calling, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. <laughs> what does that mean? It means the circumcision is the Jews. In the first century... The world was made up to the Jews of two people, the circumcised people of God, Jews, and the uncircumcised heathen, Gentiles. That was the world. It's very simple. So the circumcised, the Jews, are calling the Gentiles in the church the uncircumcised because they haven't gone through that procedure. Okay? So there's, there's a mess here. There's something not clicking right within the church. So let's, let's read verse 11 again, now that you see all that. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were hopeless because you were separated from God. You didn't even have the covenants that Israel gets. See, back in the day when Abraham was walking around, God said, I choose you. I am going to make a a relationship, a covenant with you. I'm going to make promises to you. And I'm going to make your offspring unique and special. Cool. Well, poor Gentiles, though, have to come into the church believing in Christ with these Jews saying, oh, but you see. You're not Abraham's offspring. You weren't chosen. And so there's a caste system within the church. The favored Jews and the, I guess we'll accept you Gentiles. Paul wants to address this and say this is not consistent with the gospel and with what Jesus came to do. This cannot endure. There was racial tension in the early church. Now, they may not have cared about skin so much, 
but it was definitely cultural differences based upon their ethnicity. And this is something Paul says I must address. So, we, um, we read verses 11 and 12, and we realize that, yeah, we, we see this in life. Um, C.S. Lewis warned us about the pairs of errors. The pairs of errors. This is what he means by it. He said that the devil always sends errors into the world in pairs. The devil always sends errors into the world in pairs. Pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking about which of the two is the worst. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite error. Hmm. We're a nation very divided on several issues. And I don't know if you're like me, but I get frustrated in feel, making, I get frustrated in feeling like it has to be one or the other. Well, C.S. Lewis, way back in World War II, before our time, saw all of this plainly as the work of the devil. He sets up errors in pairs, two opposites, so that you can spend all your time worrying about how the other one's wrong so that you get more deeply entrenched in the error you're in. Wow, if, the, if, we're, if we're falling into this, we're doomed. We're duped. That's dangerous. That's scary. It's the whole us versus them story. And how much of that, even, I'm not, I'm not at all pointing the finger at you guys. I just, you know, you read the news and you um, look at social media and you get a quick gist of the fact that the church in general has bought into this ideology, us versus them. And us, heaven knows what they even mean by us. Because within us, there's us versus them. But you already know that, so we don't need to go into that. Yeah, errors come in pairs. Okay, so in the church's context, what's going on with the Jews and the Gentiles? Well, can't you imagine it? The Jews are looking at the Gentiles and they're going, well, if you would just eat pork, we would all get along and get circumcised. And the Gentiles are looking at the Jews and saying, well, if you would just simply ignore your obsession with Cutting your flesh and let us be who we are, we'd all get along. If you would simply choose to eat beef, pork, I mean, we're not giving that up. So there's this back and forth battle about, look, look, you Gentiles need to become like Jews. The book of Galatians addresses that movement specifically and says, nope. Gentiles do not need to become like Jews. Acts chapter 15 addresses that issue. Nope, Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. They do not, in other words, need to become Jews. Gentiles can be Gentiles and be part of the family of Christ. But the Jews are saying, you must, early early on, before all this gets sorted out, they're saying, you must be like us. God told Abraham to circumcise his offspring. We're just trying to do what God told you to do, so do it. But... Paul is saying to the Gentiles, you can't make the Jews be more Gentile. 
do you understand something here? The Jews were seeing themselves as the superior, the favorites of God's world. So, of course, the Gentiles must be like us. But the Gentiles are the majority in the church, and the Jews are the minority. And they say, come on, get with the program. We, there's more of us than you. How do you solve this? How does poor Pastor Paul step in and say, well, golly, I am a Jew, but I was called to the Gentiles. Uh, it's almost like, how do you choose which child to save? They're all his children. How is he going to take sides? Paul says, no, no. This is the work of the devil. The devil tries to say it has to be them or it has to be them. And Paul refuses to take a side. Now, if we start to play the taking a side game, let's just call it darning socks. Rather than weaving a tapestry, you're darning socks if you try to choose a side. It has to be this or that. And what do I mean by darning socks? Not only does it just sound like a great old-fashioned phrase, but um, sock is a metaphor I teach my high school students to understand the tension between Jews and Gentiles. So the Jews think that they're walking in a pagan world. Well, they are. Um, So they put on a metaphorical sock to protect them while they walk through the world. So here's how it works. Sock is an acronym. The Jews held many laws, right? 613 in their law. 613 rules God gave them. But many of those laws, all the Gentiles agree with. Thou shalt not murder. Well, the Gentiles are right on board with that. So what the Jews started to do to differentiate themselves from the pagan world was they isolated four of their laws that made them specifically different and irreconcilably different than Gentiles. Here they are. S stands for Sabbath. Gentiles don't keep a Sabbath. The Jews do, which makes their business operations already distant. Oh, yeah, we don't work with Jews because it's the Sabbath, and the Jews are happy to be isolated. Look at us worship our one true God while you guys do your business Sabbath. The O stands for one God. Gentiles worship many gods, unless, of course, they became Christians, then they joined the one God movement. But most Romans and Greeks worship many gods. The Jews, one God. And it's not, he's none of yours, so we're totally different in religion. The C is the big one. Stands for circumcision. And you're seeing that one play out here. Why are the Jews so happy with circumcision? Because God said, this is the sign of my covenant with you, so they do it. And then it became a big point because early on the Egyptians got circumcised too, so it wasn't as big of a deal in the Old Testament, but it becomes a huge deal in the New Testament because Jews, I mean, uh, Greeks and Romans abhorred the thought of cutting off any part of the human body. They considered it mutilation of the beautiful human specimen. So the Jews really like circumcision. Because now we're totally different. And by the way, my students, you know how high schoolers can be super like, they're very, they quip a lot of comments. Well, how does anyone know? Like, well, that's a, that's a good point. I guess you're not walking up with your, you know, your, your uh, cloak pulled up all day. Look, I'm a Jew. I, I get it. That's a great question. But see, part of the point was that circumcision came with all of it. It came with Sabbath keeping one God. It was simply the physical symbol. And in addition to this, um, circumcision would remind you not to make the mistake that ancient Israel did when they began to copulate, to repopulate the earth with heathens 
right? So you can see the man, going, oh, yeah, but these, uh, these women who worship Mars or these temple prostitutes in Corinth are super attractive. And then he takes off his pants to do his thing and he's like, how embarrassing, you're circumcised? Like, oh, dear, I can't live with this. And it would obviously remind them not to do, not to become one yoke with people that don't worship Yahweh. So then there's K, enough of circumcision. <laughs> now there's K. K is for kosher dieting. Um, they, of course, didn't use the word kosher in the Bible, but it works for us because we understand that. Uh, it means that they had to eat in a certain way. Obviously, no pork was huge because Greeks loved pork. So this meant you can't eat in the... It wasn't just the food. So in other words, a, a Jew couldn't just go to a potluck at a Gentile house and just simply eat around the pork and eat around the dairy and the meat or whatever, and just, you know, eat carrots. They couldn't do that. Because being in the same house as a Gentile who ate that stuff made you unkosher. So kosher wasn't just what you ate, it was who you ate with, which now makes you completely isolated from anyone who's not like you. Because then you can't even go in their house. So the sock became their way of distancing themselves and keeping their superiority over the heathen Gentiles. Friends, we need to be careful that we don't adopt this mentality lest we be darning socks. We were not called to this earth to sit in our little chairs at church and say we're better than them and darn our socks because that's what you're doing if that's what you're thinking. Paul didn't say Jewish way or Gentile way. He is going to move right into the middle of the mess. Now, you remember last week, we talked about the priest Aaron and how he would stand in the middle. Here we go. He's calling the church to be that priesthood again. Stand in the middle and represent both sides to each other. We should not be concerned with keeping the peace. We should be concerned with making the peace. Keeping the peace is status quo. Making the peace means you're going where someone is isolated. You're going where there isn't unity, and you're bringing it. Fortunately, Jesus was a peacemaker. So we must make sense of this mess. Well, the devil wants you to say, choose that one or choose this one. But don't stand in the middle. That's too much like Christ. Don't do that. All right, so let's continue. Let's see what happens here in Ephesians. Okay. So therefore, remember, at one time, this is 2.11, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, oh, by the way, which is made in the flesh by hands. Do you see that part at the end of verse 11? That is, oh, this is classic Paul. And sometimes I wish we could just capture his tone because this is searing sarcasm right here. It's just, it, in the ESV, it reads like a parenthetical phrase, which is made in the flesh by hands. Just a throwaway phrase. Um, but he is being so... Okay, so the phrase comes from Psalm 115. And in Psalm 115, it's a psalm that pokes fun at the idols that heathens worship. And there in Psalm 115, verse 4, he specifically says the idol is made with hands. <laughs> What's Paul doing? He's saying, oh, by the way, Gentiles, those Jews who make a big deal about their circumcision, they do it with their hands. Do you catch my drift? They have made an idol of their anatomy, if you will. 
That's great sarcasm. So he's playing, he's leveling the playing board here. All right, so then remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. Now verse 13, but now, so that's the problem. There's this tension, but, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now that phrase, far off and brought near, is coming directly from Isaiah 57, verse 19. In Isaiah 57, you have the prophet talking about Israel in exile. They've been shoved off, right, from their homeland. And this is what Isaiah 57, 19 says. It says this, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says Yahweh. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says Yahweh. Okay. So he's pulling from Isaiah when he says, look, Christ came, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. Okay. So when Israel was far off in their exile and brought near, you know, part of what happened, Isaiah was foreseeing that, look, part of what's going to happen is that this isn't just going to be Jews who are far off. This is going to be those who are far off, like Gentiles too, they're all going to be brought near. And Paul's saying, when Jesus died on the cross and the people that were not Jews started believing in him for their salvation, they who were far off were brought near. He's saying, look, Isaiah foresaw a time that when Israel is restored, Gentiles would be brought in with him. And not just Isaiah. Abraham saw it too. He said, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This has been God's program from the beginning, but the Jews have been slow to understand it because they could never conceive that people could still be themselves and be saved without becoming Jews like them. It was baffling to them. No, they got to go through this process. They got to do what we do. And Paul says, no. When Christ, in Christ, you were once far off or brought near by the blood of Christ, not by the circumcision of your body, not by what you eat or who you eat with, not by your keeping the Sabbath. You You were brought brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ. And what's beautiful about that is that we all have blood. And And no no longer does it matter if your blood came from Central Europe, East Europe, Northern Europe, from the center of Asia, from South Africa, from the heart of America. It doesn't matter where your blood comes from because all of our blood comes from Christ. He gave it to us. That is now our identifying mark. Then look what he says in verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Isaiah said, peace, peace to those who are far off and those who are near. So he's continuing with Isaiah's words. For Christ himself is our peace. Is it this or that? Paul's saying that's not peace. Choosing a side is not peace. That's war. Peace is presenting something altogether different as Christ did when he came. He is our peace. Who has made both. Both means Jew Gentile. He has made both one. And has broken down in his flesh. 
the dividing wall of hostility. What's the dividing wall of hostility? It's sock. It's sock darning. That is what has been broken down. Because if in Christ, sock doesn't matter anymore, then there's no more wall separating Jew from Gentile. In his flesh, he broke that down by being torn, by being crushed. The wall was torn. It was crushed. So 15, verse 15 extends this idea by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So that's all just fancy language for the places sock came from. So he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create. Why did he break down the wall? Why did he tear up the sock? Why is that law separating them done with? Why? So that he might create in himself one new man or one new Adam, one new humanity in place of the two. So making peace. How did he make peace? He didn't say, well, the Gentiles are right, Jews. You got to kind of be more like a Gentile. Nor did he say, the Jews are right, Gentiles. You got to be more like a Jew. And nor did he sit down and say, well, okay, let's come to a compromise. Jews, if you'll eat meat, the Gentiles agree to be circumcised. (sighs) Could you imagine if that was what happened? There was none of this. And we'll just kind of make it work. There was no one side trying to make the other side like the other side. None of that. Paul steps in and says, you guys are thinking too narrowly. Because what Christ did has blown our expectations. It has caused us to think in an entirely different way. He's made us a new humanity. In other words, there is neither A nor B. There's C. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There is the new humanity. God in Christ has recreated Adam as an unfallen being. Christ and now more are coming when they come in him. He's forgiving sin. He's restoring us to his image. There is a new humanity. And this humanity does not identify with Jew or Gentile. Because all that deals with the flesh. But in our core identity... Who we are in him, it's just a new humanity. And God sees all of the color and all of the variety and all the cultures and all of the different forms of worship and says, yes, that is the new humanity. And that's what Psalm 133, we looked at last week, is completely expressing. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. How Edenic and how musical. So in verse 16, so he made a new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Friends, we no longer have to darn socks. We no longer have to choose which pair of the errors is the best. We have a third option. 
Christ has given us a third way in the world. And he said, why don't you just come on right with me and stand in the middle? And here's the beautiful thing we... we, we I can't forget the mic. Here's the beautiful thing we have seen. In chapter 2, the first part, it was about this union between us and God. This has been unified. And then Paul gets to the sticky and messy part about Jew and Gentile and says, Look, in the cross, this also has been unified. And what Paul literally does, by saying that it's the cross of Christ that brings a union between all four of these entities, he is painting a picture of the cross. We're on the back side of the tapestry and we see this mess of fuzzy, raw, threaded, fraying, weaving things. We're like, what is this? But Paul shows us the front side and says, look, it's the cross of Christ. Connecting us horizontally, Jew and Gentile. Connecting us vertically between God and man. That's what this tapestry looks like. And so, in a world that finds fault with everyone... In a world that's living by us versus them. In a world that says it has to be either or. Jesus hangs on the cross and says, it's neither nor. How about I'm an option that can make it all work? Because I'm making all things new. In Leviticus chapter 16, I think it is. They choose two goats on the Day of Atonement. You remember this? We were in Leviticus, what, two years ago or something? They choose two goats. One is going to be killed, and the blood is going to be poured in the tabernacle so the priest can go in there and God will be happy. That's a picture of Christ. God and the priests in Israel are all coming together on that day. But then the other goat was a scapegoat, right? Unleashed. That also is a picture of Jesus because the people would lay their sins and confess them on the scapegoat and be driven off out there. One of the things that Christ's death does, yes, his blood atones for us so that atone can make us at one with God and us. Like That's part of what happened. But also his death was so that it could reach to each other. So that Jews and Gentiles, so that people all around the world, if in him they so choose to be, they can come together. This is what you call a scapegoat. Is when both sides vent their hostility on a third party. When both sides have a third party to vent their hostility, instead of aiming it at each other, I got to take this out on you because you're them and we're us. Instead of that, when someone stands in the middle and takes that hit for you and takes the hit coming from you to me, when they stand there, they become a scapegoat. And they absorb the hostility. That's what Paul said. He, he, what, what was the word? Something about hostility? Help me. Broke down the dividing wall of hostility. And then, oh, verse 16. Thereby killing the hostility. When he died, the hostility of Jews for Gentiles and of Gentiles for Jews died in him. And when someone takes that hit and you've vented all of your hostility and the world's vented all of its anger, there's nothing left. If you so choose to let Christ receive it, there's nothing left except for, oh, we were wrong the whole time. And as C.S. Lewis says, that's going to be the great joke in heaven. We were wrong the whole time. Ironically enough, when Christ was executed to the cross, Lord, forgive 
the part of the church that has blamed the Jews for that. Because the Jews had absolutely no authority to crucify people. And yet somehow, there are Christians every Easter who call Jews Christ killers. The Jews had no authority. They wanted Christ dead. Yeah, let's not kid ourselves. But they needed the Roman government, the Gentiles, to execute him. The Gentiles had plenty of reason. Oh, you say that he's a king? (laughs) Caesar's a king, and if he gets wind of this? So they work together. In his death, Jews and Gentiles, I know this is super ironic because they weren't coming together for good reasons, but even in his death and even in the working of evil, Jew and Gentile came together at the cross. And Paul points this out and says, look, the cross is where it bridges the divide between Jew and Gentile. If we're still targeting others or seeing sides, it's because you haven't allowed Christ to absorb all of your sin. When Cain killed Abel, that's... That was the first, after the fall, like eating the forbidden fruit, that was the first human-to-human sin and crime. What does Christ do? He stands in the middle and he absorbs that. But if we're still aiming our words, our ire, our, you need to be more like me, my superiority, and if we're still doing that, we have not allowed Christ to carry the sin of the world. You have taken that on yourself. And I'm sorry to say, but you are dying When we live that way, we are killing ourselves. So the cross, um, bringing heaven and earth together, bringing Jew and Gentile together. Christ is the answer to everything. And there he is saying, there's a third way. Don't bind the devil's pairs of errors. Please don't bind that, Paul says. Okay, so as a result of all this, Um, You see in verse 19, the Gentiles get good news. This is 2 verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Isn't that beautiful? They're all... Okay, so the Jews are like, yeah, we're already chosen. We know we're in the household of God. But (laughs) Paul had to say explicitly to the Gentile, you are full-fledged citizen and member of this kingdom, of this household of God. I just have to say that because you may not always feel that. We're working on that. You are fully adopted. You're fully brought in. Or in Romans, what, 10, 11, 10. Yeah, 11. In Romans 11, he'll eventually say, they've been grafted into the same tree. You're, so this is just his way of saying it here. You are, you are, you're now members of the household of God. Okay. Well... That's the beautiful story he tells. Chapters 1 through 3 is all Paul basically, he doesn't even get to the point of his book. He's just telling the story about what has happened in Christ. What we've received and how he's brought us and God together. And he's brought uh, Jews and Gentiles together. And then he prays for them. And then finally in chapter 4, finally in chapter 4, he gets to his point. And some of you are like, that sounds a lot like Pastor Brandon. In chapter 4, he says, I therefore, there you know he's like getting around to it now, halfway into the book. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy. Or the Greek literally also means in balance. When it says worthy, it's a picture of scales coming out 
in balance. So walk worthy, walk in balance of the calling to which you have been called. What have you been called to? Well, you got a glimpse of it. We just looked at it. The new humanity in the cross of Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling or in balance. So if Christ has unified us with God and all humans together in his Christ, in his cross, if that has happened, then you and I, we have to walk worthy of that. We have to walk a cruciform life. Everything's coming together with Christ in the heart. How do you do that? Well, this is a lot to be said in the book still, as you noticed, but he gives us a couple of, a, a quick idea. Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Okay, I don't see a lot of humility in the world right now. Every side is arrogantly correct. Uh, gentleness, <laughs> enough said. Uh, with patience, look, not everyone's going to see the world your way. Be patient. And by the way, the world as you see it may not be the right way anyways. Remember, don't think. That's not humility, right? Don't think that you're on the right side. Um, With patience. Bearing with one another in love. A lot of defriending on Facebook lately. Actually, uh, someone someone in here actually posted a nice thing about that. It was pretty good. Um, And verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Eager. Are you eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? So John O'Donohue said that we are all deeply connected with one each other in some strange way. Um, each of us is secretly active in weaving the tapestry of the spirit. Are we eager to maintain the unity of those threads of the spirit and the bond of peace? Chapters 1 through 3 are all about how we gained unity. And we see over and over, it's cross, it's Christ, it's his blood, unity gained. But now he says unity must be maintained. It must be maintained. So, in the bond of peace. Peace, by the way, doesn't look like yelling and shouting. It doesn't look like arrogance. It looks like the word he already used earlier when he said, um, verse four, 2 verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Christ himself is our peace. What did he say there? Remember he said he's our peace because he has made of the two one by breaking the wall in his flesh on the cross. Peace looks like that. Okay, then he goes into the main message of his book. His whole thesis here is walk in unity. Walk in unity. Then he starts to describe that. He gives us lots of moral examples. He gives us the example of of marriage as an example of unity between Christ and the church. And obviously a subcontext there is Jews and Gentiles too. Um, Then he talks about, um, in chapter 6, he talks about children and parents need to be unified. Slaves and masters need to be unified. Uh, But before that, there's a lot of other examples, some moral examples about how to talk to each other, about how to treat each other. And and the cross comes in again and again to emphasize that this is the center. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, how do we imitate God? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up to, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There it is. How do we walk in love? How do we imitate God? 
the way he did it by giving his love on the cross. So we too love in the same way. Um, but I want you to look at 4 verse 4 because then he kicks off this whole section with this beautiful, beautiful, you could almost call it a creed. Like this is something that the church would have said, we believe in this. 4 verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Look at that word one, seven times. Count it, seven. We're the new humanity. So what does Paul say? The new humanity walks in the seven days of the Edenic creation. We have a sevenfold oneness. Then he talks about the fact that we're a body. That's the that's, um, next few verses. We're, we're one body given different roles. Okay, and then the parts I already told you, some moral commands about how to be unified, and then examples of wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters. But then he comes to his final emotional appeal. This is his closing, his, uh, if you want to use the... Uh, um, the Greek term, his pathos comes into play here. He's, he's laying it all on the line. He's saying, please listen to this. This is, this is my closing image for you. Walk away with this, church. So in verse, chapter 6, verse 10, he says this. Finally, in light of all of this, this is the big thing. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Now, usually when we come to this passage in, Je- in Ephesians chapter 6, we, we kind of read it as its own entity, right? It's like, oh, the spiritual warfare section, the armor of God section. And we think of it in its own little isolated island. But please read this with that word finally in connection with Paul's larger argument of maintaining peace and unity. Finally, this is what unity looks like ultimately it's putting on the whole armor of god verse 11 that why do we need this that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil we already know one of the devil's greatest schemes it's to divide and the way he divides is by presenting to us a pair of errors You, Christian, must put on the armor of God so that you can stand. Why stand? Because throughout the whole book, he's been telling us that you are in Christ. This is your position. Do you remember we read that? He raised you up and he seated you with him in the heavenly places. You are in Christ. You are in the best possible place you can ever be. You cannot ever improve your position. So what he's telling us to do is to stand up. Don't just sit on your couch, but stand up as a Christian and And don't be pulled out of your position toward the left or the right, the front or the back, up or down. Stand where Christ has put you. Because what the devil's going to try to do with his pair of errors is he's going to try to say, come on, no, this is the right way. How many Christians are on both ends of any dilemma in our nation? Honestly, if you honestly look at it, there are Christians on both sides. That's kind of silly. What's silly is that we can see 
oh, that side's the enemy, and then there's Christians on that side. We've created our own Jew-Gentile tension because we're not standing in the armor of God. Stand so that you may not uh, be... Stand so that you may put on the armor so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Okay, but here's where it gets tricky, and here's where it gets really interesting. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Why does he have to say that? Because they're wrestling against flesh and blood. The Jews are wrestling against Gentiles, and Gentiles are wrestling against Jews, and we're wrestling against people in our nation. You do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He has to say it because we do it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Then, then what do we wrestle against, Paul? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we're wrestling against. And here's the scary truth. God can come to us in a human body. He did in Jesus, and we can relate to him and see him and touch him. As First John says, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him. But the devil cannot. All he can do is use people. He cannot incarnate himself. So what does he do? He uses the bodies all around him and says, all right, I'm going to rile you up and I'm going to send you to make a mess of things. I'm going to make you demand people are for or against. I'm going to make you draw a line in the sand and ask everyone to stand with you here and everybody else is not with you. I'm That's what he does. And so every time a person says something to you that makes you upset, you have to understand that your battle's not with the person who said that. It's with the power of evil and darkness behind them that gave them the idea to say that. Your struggle is with something that's moving behind flesh and blood. And here Paul talks about it as an organized thing. He talks about it as rulers and authorities and cosmic powers. There's some stru- there is some deep systemic structure to this evil. Even in Daniel, is it chapter 9? I don't remember. There's a little blurb where Daniel's praying and then Gabriel comes to him and says, I would have been here earlier, but I got in a battle with the prince of Persia. What? Wait, why did you, why did you just say that in passing? Stop. We need a Bible study. Tell us more. But he doesn't. All we're left with is this tantalizing image of there are princes over nations that are not the people you see in flesh and blood. So Paul is saying, look, guys, it is so important you don't get duped. So stand in the armor of God. And the armor of God he's about to talk about, but ultimately it's about the position that he's talked about the church being in. And let's look at it. So verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God. He's reiterating now that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand. So he's now said stand four times. Is that significant? Yeah, probably. Nowhere are you going to see him use the word march, attack. None of that. It's all stand. It's your one verb other than put on the armor. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. 
and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And then the rest is just greetings, tell so-and-so hello, and so forth. That's his final emotional appeal. Christian, please stand. Please stand. Don't walk this way. Don't walk that way. Don't be pulled out of position. And here, what many people say is that Paul, writing in prison or having been in prison, has seen a Roman soldier. I mean, he doesn't need to be in prison to see that. The entire world has seen the Roman army because that's what keeps the peace in the Roman world. You don't like what we say? We have an army to deal with that. Oh, and they did ruthlessly. Everyone in the Roman Empire knew what the Roman army looked like. And some of them were on the wrong end of that. The Roman army was considered invincible. It could not be defeated, which is why they took over the whole world. They could not be defeated, at least, as long as they marched in rank. The Romans never did hand-to-hand combat. Well, not, they never did solo-to-solo hand-to-hand combat. They, they always fought in a group. And as long as they fought in a group, they were considered invisible because they had armor in all the places where they needed it, and they had those shields. And the shields were actually designed to interlock with the shields next to you so that you could interlock your shield with your brother and with your sister and with your brother and your sister. And and down the road, they are interlocked. And as long as they stood in formation, not a single enemy would ever defeat them. What Paul is urging the church at the close here is please stand unified and stand in your position and don't feel like you need to wander out into some other proposed position to seem like you matter or to seem like that you, you've got to have your voice heard. You stand in unity and you will always defeat the cosmic forces. The darkness will never stand against you. It doesn't have a chance with the unified body of Christ. We really need to see that there is some deep evil in the world. And it's our job to stand, not to call flesh and blood the evil. There's some deep evil. And I don't know, you know, I don't know. um, People have been talking about institutional and systemic racism and stuff. And there's been a lot of like, no, that's not true. And that's totally true. And honestly, I'm a white kid. Was raised a white kid, obviously. I'm a, I'm a white man now, and I can't pretend that I know what it's like to not be a white person. I can't. So I have no idea. It would be arrogant of me to declare yes or no to that. However, would it not be within the biblical scope to say that there could be systemic forms of evil because of the forces of darkness? Regardless... There is a cosmic systemic evil in the universe, and it's called division. And that's what the devil's good at. And so Paul pleads, stand in unity. Brothers and sisters, as we, as, as we um, finish this two-week segment on unity, 
I cannot urge you enough the importance that we stand in unity and not for divisive issues. We have to model the cross if we're ever to be taken seriously that the cross saves. Paul wants us to stand in unity. I want us to stand in unity. I think you want us to stand in unity. Perhaps Ephesians is the book we need to read and reread and reread this week 